You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. Hi folks, and welcome to episode 43 of the Let's Talk Photography podcast. I'm your host, Bart Bouchatz. This is the third and final part of an ongoing three-part solo series I've been doing on the show. So we started with an episode dedicated to the somewhat simple-sounding question, well, what is a camera? And we looked back through history quite a bit, and ultimately we arrived at the fact that whatever technology is deployed to make a camera work in any given time, the actual basic principle remains the same. You have a lens which focuses light onto an image plane, and on that image plane is something which is sensitive to light and allows the image cast onto it to be permanently stored in some way. And that was for a long time a photochemical process, getting better and better over time as better photochemistry was invented. Uh, And then it has now become an electronic process. So we now have digital sensors sitting there with the light falling on them, and they're effectively counting the number of electrons in each of many, 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 many buckets, pixels, megapixels and using that to create a permanent record of the image that was cast onto them Uh, then in the second installment we went on to to look at what's going on in a modern digital camera so digital cameras contain all the parts any camera does so you have a lens casting light onto an image playing with a digital sensor and then we no longer have to tell the camera how to expose, you know, what aperture to use, what brightness to use, what ISO sensitivity to use. It's just magically done for us. And if we pick up your average phone or smartphone, camera, whatever, in full auto mode, you click the button and an image pops out. And it's actually a pretty good image usually. So the little computer in there is getting input from a bunch of sensors. It's using that input along with some good programming to try figure out what settings to set when you press the shutter. And so effectively, it's doing that work on your behalf. And so some of the decisions it's making is sort of the big three, the exposure triangle, what aperture, what exposure, what ISO should I use? And it's using the light meter to decide a lot of that. It has some sort of sensor for detecting focus and it's deciding what part of the image should I try to get into focus and is it in focus now? And also it's deciding on your white balance. So it's sort of having a look and trying to deduce based on what's arriving at the at the sensor what color the light originally must have been and therefore what color everything in the scene must actually be. And it's making all of these decisions in you know fractions of a second between us tapping on the, the screen or whatever on our iPhones or pressing the button on our Micro Four Thirds or point and shoots or DSLRs. It's all happening in the blink of an eye, but that's what's going on in there. And so the obvious next step which is what i want to talk about this time is well what if we would like to start asserting our control wouldn't it be very empowering to be able to at our discretion when we want take complete and total control away from the little computer in the camera and specify all the settings ourselves that is very empowering and one of the best things that comes with the ability, you know, the the experience, the practice to get to there is that you can then choose to delegate a whole bunch of that back to the little computer. But it's on your terms now. So you stand in a situation and you decide, I'm going to take control of this and I'm going to let the little computer take control of everything else. Or I'm going to let the computer take care of absolutely everything apart from this one thing that I really care about. 
and that's basically where the creativity comes in what you want to do is you you sort of you want the computer working for you so you as the creative want to be deciding on the things that matter to you so that the photograph looks the way you want it to look and then you delegate away the stuff that isn't relevant to the artistry of what you're trying to do you let the computer do that so that your brain is free to worry about what you care about and uh, one way to think about that is on modern fighter jets the pilot actually can't fly because the plane is so unstable to make it be able to move her quickly that it would actually just fall out of the sky if the pilot was in full control but actually what the pilot does is it tells the computer what to do and then the computer figures out how to make it so and to some extent when you're in that sort of halfway house where you're saying i'm going to take some control and i'm going to let the computer have some control that's what you're doing you're you're letting the computer do what it's good at and you're letting you focus on what you're good at which is hopefully the creative part of photography so that, that's kind of where we want to go and there's this huge spectrum between I'm going to let the computer decide everything and I'm going to let the computer decide nothing. And that that there's a massive, massive spectrum in there, sort of a massive mushy grey area. And I just want to sort of talk about the various different options you have in that grey area. And remember, as we go through the episode, we're going to start with taking small pieces of control and then we're going to gradually take more and more control. And hopefully we arrive at a point where you know you could consider or at least experiment with i mean that's a great thing with digital photography it's free to experiment pretty much just cost a couple of electrons to charge your camera up you fire away if they're all rubbish oh well throw them away you've lost nothing but time and you've gained nothing but experience so hopefully at the very least i'll inspire you to start taking a little bit more control and maybe even you know turning the computer off completely from time to time and doing it all just so you can and then in the real world when you're actually trying to get a photograph of an actual thing that's not going to happen again then you can make a more informed decision and in reality it's very rare that i actually use the camera in complete full manual mode there's a few exceptions but on the whole on average i'd say 98 percent of my shots are taken with the computer being allowed to do something but it's on it's on my terms i'm deciding i want this and you can have control of that now you might think that this episode is going to be all about you know fancy pants dslrs or uh, you know micro four thirds cameras at the very least but no the spectrum starts pretty much on every camera, even on your smartphone. You actually can assert some control. Yeah, okay, you can't assert all control. Or actually, with modern camera apps, you can, you can start to assert more control. But even just with the basic out-of-the-box, the camera as it comes with your smartphone, you can already assert some control. So I, I have in my hand here my iPhone just while I'm recording this, just to remind myself of what you can do these days. It's not the latest iPhone. Um, or, no, I don't think it is. No, it's not a 7, so it's not the latest. Um... And even on a ba- on a smartphone, you can already start to take some control away from the little computer. So by default, if you just turn on the camera app, that's full auto mode. It's not labeled as such. It just is, right? You point, you click the shutter button, it takes a picture. The computer has decided everything apart from where the camera points. That, that's still up to you. But if you tap anywhere on that screen, well, now you've asserted some control. What you've done is you've said to the little computer, I want this part of the screen to be in focus. So you're now controlling focus. You're not telling it whether to pull in or pull out, but you are telling it, I want this bit to be in focus. And then when you do that, a little box appears showing you where it's focused. And next to that box is a little handle that looks like a sun. Well, if you pick up that handle and drag it up and down, what you're then doing is you're adjusting the exposure. So that's another control you're taking away. So what are you doing here? So... When your camera is in full auto mode, it's setting the aperture exposure nice, so the so-called exposure triangle, based on the reading it's getting from the light meter. And it knows that on average you want about an 18, 18% 
grey is what it's called. So basically a certain amount of illumination on average over the whole scene and then it will look quote-unquote right. Well, one of the simplest manual assertions you can start to give is where you, it's called biasing the meter or exposure compensation, depending on your camera brand. So exposure bias, exposure compensation. What you're doing is you're saying to the little computer, I'm still going to let you set all three values, but I'd like you to make it brighter or darker than the light meter thinks. So you're basically nudging the exposure you're nudging the target up or down and letting the computer figure all the rest out, but saying, no, no, don't aim for that automatically chosen target, aim for this target instead. You know, as I say, on Nikon cameras, that's called exposure compensation. I think it might be called exposure bias on some other brands of camera. But that's what you're doing here in a simple little smartphone, which is not bad going, right? Uh, you also obviously have direct control over some things, like there's a little icon for a flash, and you can say, no, no, I don't care whether you think the flash should be on or shouldn't be on, we're going flashing here, or whether you want to flash or not, I'm telling you not to. So basically you have auto on or off. You can choose to enable HDR mode, so that's again sort of taking some control, slightly into the post-processing at this stage, but you get the idea. So, yeah, okay, we haven't done a huge amount here, but we've still, we have asserted some control over that little computer. Now, of course, if you go out and you buy sort of quote-unquote pro camera apps for your smartphone, well, then you can take even more control over. So even on a smartphone, there is actually quite a bit you can do. And then if you have anything above a smartphone, be it a point-and-shoot or a Micro Four Thirds or a full-blown DSLR, then, you know, basically the further up you go in the fancy-pantsness of the camera, I guess, the more you can assert yourself over the little computer. And in fact, some point-and-shoot cameras were particularly beloved by amateur photographers because they were small and portable, and yet they allowed you to take a lot of control. I, I believe the Canon G9 had this cult following because you could do so much manual control, even though it was a tiny, small, portable little uh, point-and-shoot camera. But basically, every camera you have is going to allow you to reach some point on the spectrum if you're on a Micro Four Thirds or a DSLR. The chances are you can get all the way to full manual control. So I'm now going to switch over, and I'm going to keep my DSLR next to me here to remind me not to miss out on anything. Okay, so regardless of which um, digital camera you're going to pick up, uh, something you're always going to have is the little picture mode. So you'll have these on full-blown DSLRs, and you'll have these on point-and-shoots, and you will have these on um, Micro Four Thirds and so forth. These are the so-called scenes. And they, they, the icons are often similar to each other. So you might have a picture of a tulip, a picture of someone who looks like they're running, maybe a picture of some kids, something that looks like a mountain, something that looks like a lady with a hat. So the, these are the scene modes. The icons may vary a little bit, but they, they tend to pick quite similar uh, images, I guess, similar iconography is the word I was looking for to each other, just so because people get used to these things. So the little flower, the little tulip, um, that's for macro. So that is, you're telling the camera, I want you in your full automatic mode. I'm still letting you take all the decisions, but I'm telling you that the thing you're looking at is up close to you. So use that information while deciding on what to do. And the chances are that the, the little computer and the camera will, if possible, use uh, quite a, basically set the aperture as high as it can, because what happens when you get physically close to something is the depth of field begins to get ever shorter and ever shorter and ever shorter. So if you go right up to a flower and take a picture at f8, 
you're going to have an awful lot less depth of field than you think because you think to yourself, F8, that's not a shallow depth of field. But if you're, you know, 30 inches away, well, that changes things quite a bit, or let alone if you get closer. So if you tell the camera, I'm pointing at something very close, the camera's going to say, okay, well, actually, rather than letting that, that aperture come down below 11 or whatever, I'm going to try keep it up there, 11, 12 sort of region, and instead, I'm going to make the exposure ever longer until the point where we can't get away with it. And then I'll reluctantly start to bring that aperture down. So you're not telling the camera how to do its job. You're simply telling the camera, here's a little bit more information to help you choose between all of the different possibilities, given the amount of light the light sensor is picking up at the moment. And sometimes, depending on the maker model of camera, you can also dial in aperture or um, compensation while in this mode now i just noticed with the nikon i can't dial in uh, exposure compensation while i have the camera in this mode um so you're you know you're the, you're basically telling the camera i'm now taking a close-up and it's going to do its best to help you the next common one is a little running man it usually looks like a little running man to me um sometimes well basically it's always going to look like something athletic it's basically the sport mode and you're telling the camera, I am taking a picture of something that is moving quickly. And so that that gives the camera a whole different set of priorities. The camera will now try, if at all possible, so it's going to use a light meter to figure out how much light there is. And then it's going to say, I am going to keep that shutter speed as short as I possibly can to still get a proper exposure. And that means that you're not going to have horrible motion blur effects because there's something moving quickly here. So if the camera were to, to, to make that exposure too long, it wouldn't work at all. So you're, you're helping the camera again. Uh, I'm not actually sure what the little kid is. Um, I probably should have read my manual. I don't think I've ever shot on the picture of the little kid. Kids sound awfully like sport to me uh, because they tend to move around just as much. So I'm not really sure what the difference is between kid and sport. Um, and then the next one is that usually looks like a picture of a silhouette of a mountain. That's the landscape mode. So you're telling the camera, I'm outside. I'm taking a picture of a landscape. The chances are there's not very much moving. There's not very much very close to the camera. Therefore, the camera isn't going to worry about making sure that that shutter speed doesn't, you know, is nice and snappy because that's not relevant. The mountain is unlikely to run away. Uh, it's also not going to worry too much about letting that um, F number come down low because at the end of the day, if you're focusing on something at or near infinity, the depth of field is going to be deep, even if you're down to F5, F6, whatever. So again, you're telling the camera you're free to move around in a few things here. And then the picture of the lady in the hat or some sort of face usually that's portrait mode and for a portrait what you generally want actually is a nice shallow depth of field to give that sort of you know that nice effect where the the, the face is in focus but whatever the, the person is standing in front of falls out of focus and so you're not going to take a portrait with the camera right up the person's nostrils so it's not the same as the tulip mode as the macro mode uh, in that case you actually want the aperture to come down nice and low as, as low as you can get away with really because you're standing back from the person so you're not going to get you're unlikely to get so low that their nose is in focus and their ears are out of focus unless you have a very fancy pants lens and chances are at that stage the little brain in the camera is not going to go down to f1.4 and um, it's going to stick in sort of more sane regions than that probably so that is the lowest level of taking control it's basically saying just using the little pictograms to tell the camera you know, don't try to guess on total average, guess on the average of this subset of reality. And that can be a great help to help the little computer in the camera make better decisions. So that's you, maybe not directly asserting control, 
you're you're giving guidance now you're not telling the camera exactly what setting to use but you're you're helping the camera make the decision it has to make anyway that's a step towards control i would say now the next mode is is a bit of an oddball mode it's p which stands for program it certainly doesn't stand for perfect and um i think my personal mnemonic is p is for piss poor if you'll excuse my language uh, nonetheless i should mention that p exists so P is like the auto mode, as in P is still in command of the exposure triangle, all, all three legs of the exposure triangle. But some of the features that were disabled while you were in the picture modes, in the scene modes, are now enabled again. So if you, you can dial in some exposure compensation if you like when you're in P mode. You can also choose whether or not the flash jumps up. If you're in the uh, pictogram modes the flash will come up when the camera wants it to, regardless of whether or not you want it to. The camera has basically taken a lot of control to itself. In program mode, you can also start to do things like tell the camera, actually, I want the ISO to be this. So although I said it was taking full control of the exposure triangle, that's not actually true in program mode. You you get control of one leg of the stool. You get to set the ISO if you like. Now, you can choose to set the ISO to auto. That is a choice you can make. But it is nonetheless, it's now at your disposal. You can also choose a specific white balance or you can choose to leave the white balance on auto so you're again making a choice you also get to decide what auto focus modes to use and all those kind of things and what kind of metering modes so all of these options which would be grayed out probably if you're in one of the scene modes so you, you know if you go into the settings mode a lot of the stuff in the scene modes is grayed out um, i do get control of the autofocus area on my nikon when i'm in one of the scene modes i don't get control of metering and I do get to decide which autofocus mode we're in. Um, but that's kind of it. Oh, and it does let me decide the ISO, actually, and, and the Nikon cameras. It doesn't let me decide the white balance. It doesn't let me decide... Yeah, it, it disables most things, to be honest. Um, so when you put it into P, you're given some controls while the camera is still doing a lot. But, of course, you've lost the ability to give it a hint as to what you like. Now, in a lot of cameras, when you're in P mode... So when you're in... Basically, there's there's often many possible correct ways to get the correct exposure many possible combinations of shutter speed and aperture and or iso depending on what you have left if you leave the iso on auto as well you're going to have you know obviously that's going to give you more options and on a lot of cameras if you twiddle the thumb wheel while it's in program mode it'll cycle through some different plausible quote-unquote correct exposures based on what the light meter thinks and again you can bias what's correct with a bit of exposure compensation that you can usually dial what well, you can dial in in this mode so program mode is a very, I find it a very strange sort of halfway house between, it's like automatic, but I've given you a little bit of token control, but not in any specific area, and you don't get the ability to tell the camera what it is it's doing. I never use program mode. Mind you, I also don't use the scenes. Um, but program is just, I've never understood the point of it, but nonetheless it exists, so I figure I should mention it. So the next step on from program mode is where I think things get interesting. We now get after program mode. The next two I'm going to talk to you about here are the two modes my camera spends the vast majority of its time in. So depending on your brand of camera, they may be called A and S, or they may be called what is it? S V and A V and T V. I think aperture value and time value. I think is what Canon calls them. And aperture priority and shutter priority, or A and S, is what Nikon call them. And I'm not sure, you know, different other vendors will use various different groupings of that. But basically, if you are in, let, let's start on S, which is TV in camera in Canon land. What you're doing in S is you're, you are asserting control over 
the white balance, if you like, you can set it to auto. The ISO, if you like, you can set it to auto. Uh, you now have control of the autofocus mode. You have control over, um, basically, you have control over pretty much everything apart from one thing, which is what you're giving. So basically, what you're doing is you're saying, so you can now control, just looking here on my Nikon, white balance is in my control, ISO is in my control, uh, focus mode is in my control. Uh, AF area is in my control, so in other words, what the autofocus should focus on, and also the metering is in my control, as are flash compensation, which basically says dial in more or less flash than the light meter thinks is needed, or none at all, uh, and exposure compensation is in my control. Um, and the other thing that's now in my direct control, if I move the thumb wheel, is the shutter speed. So the, the, the time of the exposure I have asserted explicit control over and that means, so the exposure triangle has three values, and that means that I have anchored, two of them are now in my control. The ISO is in my control, but I can choose to give it up if I want, and the shutter speed is in my explicit control, which means that the camera is managing the aperture. Again, it's deciding what aperture to use based on the light meter, so you can dial in some exposure compensation or bias to tell the light meter to change its mind, you know, do the, you know, expose brighter or darker than you think. Well, you have asserted direct control over the shutter speed. So you're actually setting the shutter speed. You're turning the thumb screw and the shutter speed is going to what it wants and the camera is using the other variable it has control of to make sure you get a proper exposure. So this is perfect in situations where time matters. So the, and that comes, there's sort of two ways there. So either you're dealing, you have some, well, the chances are you have something fast moving if you're in shutter priority mode. And then you are deciding artistically whether... You want to freeze that action, therefore you are going to put it in shutter priority mode and you're going to dial in a really short, snappy shutter speed. Or you say, well, actually, there's movement in this scene, but I intentionally want motion blur. I want to have the waterfall go like cotton wool or I want to have the car's lights make a streak through the image or whatever. So you're basically saying I, you're taking control over how much or how little blur there is going to be based on the fact that there's something moving in this scene. So it's generally speaking, if you want shutter priority, what you care about artistically is time. So you are set, you're controlling time for whatever artistic reason. And then the cousin of shutter priority or time value TV is aperture priority or AV if you're in um, Canon land. And aperture priority is exactly the same, except you're saying to the camera, you look after the shutter speed. I'm going to tell you what aperture to use. So you're just swapping which of the two legs the camera has control of and which of the two legs you have control of. So this is... Aperture is one of the most important artistic controls. So A, or AV if I was in Canon land, which I'm not, A is the setting my camera lives in 90% of the time, probably. vast majority of the time, it's either in A or M. Um, and A is, I think, creatively the most important because your aperture controls your depth of field. And sometimes... You want a deep depth of field to tell a story. And sometimes you want a shallow depth of field. And sometimes you're trying to balance between the two. But basically, the look of a photograph is so heavily determined by the depth of field, which is directly controlled through the aperture, that to me, it's the most important thing to assert myself. So I, I really do want control of that aperture. Uh, sometimes I'll play around. Sometimes I'll use uh, shutter priority mode you know, for something that moves quickly but 99% of the time it's it's aperture priority mode for me so that I'm artistically expressing my desire for I want this to be sure I want you know this to be um 
I want this much depth of field, basically, is what I'm deciding. And then, there's only one more click left on this dial. And that's M. That's the scary one. Basically, you're telling the computer to sod off. Although, actually, not completely telling the computer to sod off. Because even in full manual mode, you can still delegate away some things. So if I click my icon here into full manual mode, you might think, oh, I've given up control of everything. Right, I have the option to. Sorry, I've taken control of everything. I have the option to. White balance. I can still set to auto if I would like. Or I can set it to manual. I can set the ISO to auto. Or I can assert control of that. I can leave the autofocus mode in AFA, which is basically automatically decide what to do. Uh, however, I do have to say what autofocus area mode I want and what metering mode I want. Uh, there's no real, there's not such thing as exposure compensation in full manual mode because it doesn't really make any sense. You're, you are controlling both the aperture and the shutter. So if you wanted to be brighter than the light meter says, just click one of those two to the other or the ISO. So you have all three legs of the exposure triangle in your direct control. So it's not really such a thing as, um, actually, now that I think about it, I don't think I can put the ISO in auto in this mode. No, if I'm in manual mode, I actually do have to decide on the ISO. So the three legs of the stool are in my control on full manual, but the white balance I can make automatic. Okay, so that that sort of covers, on any of the cameras I've ever owned anyway, That that's sort of the spectrum between full auto and full manual. But even if you're in full manual or in many of the modes in between, there's a few other settings we haven't really focused on. So it is, I just want to look at those as well before we finish up today. Okay, so we're in, if you're in any really, any mode from program up, so program shutter, aperture, manual, you have control of actually quite a number of things. And so let's just look at them. So white balance is always the difficult one. And a lot of the time you're probably as well to leave that in auto, especially if you shoot raw where you can fix it later. But if you want to, you can set the value of it based on sort of predefined settings. So uh, a round bulb with light coming out of it is sort of a incandescent um a, a strip with light coming out of it is fluorescent um a sun is daylight a uh, flash is or something that looks like lightning is flash mode then you have cloudy and then you have shade and then you have something called pre which is basically you show the camera or at least a nikon line is called pre it probably has different uh, names in other cameras but basically you you tell the camera i'm about to show you something white or sorry not white something neutral in color and you will then use that to determine the white balance you will use. So you're effectively manually setting a white balance. Another approach I use a lot is leave it in auto and carry around a grey card. And every time I arrive at a place, take one picture of the grey card in the normal light. Keep that so that when I come into Lightroom later, I can tell Lightroom that that's a neutral colour. Now figure out the correct white balance and apply it to all the photographs I shot here. And that way I'm not worrying too much in the field. I just very quickly snap and then I'm gone. Uh, but that only works if you shoot in RAW because if you shoot in JPEG, you're throwing away all the information that Lightroom would need to correct the white balance properly. So you can assert yourself over the white balance if you want. I Actually, no, it's not true. I don't always leave it in auto. Um, if I'm shooting astronomy, if I'm doing uh, long star shots, there's so little light there. The poor computer has nothing to work with, really. So the poor computer gets awfully confused if you just point it up at an almost completely dark sky. So what I will set when I'm doing the nighttime stuff is I will actually set a manual white balance of daylight, which is basically neutral light. And that will give natural looking nighttime shots in unilluminated places. 
Now, if the entire ground of your shot is illuminated with fluorescent lights or with incandescent lights, that's not going to work and you're going to have to use a different white balance, which is actually going to throw the stars off and give the stars a false colour. But you kind of have no choice because you're either going to have a really ugly ground or a not technically correct sky. Um, it's also a reason why if you're going to do, if you're going to get really serious about light painting and fun stuff like that, make sure you get an actually white torch because then you can leave your camera set at neutral or 5000 degrees or sunshine white balance and get good results. So that's the white balance. So what's the next thing I control here? Well, the ISO is under my control again. We've talked about that many times. And uh, the next and important one is focus mode. And that's basically... AFA means that you let the camera decide what makes the most sense. Then AFS, now again, these labels are going to differ from camera to camera, but basically you're going to have a autofocus automatic where it decides which of the two next modes it's going to use based on the little computer having a guess. So what are the two next modes? Well, there's single servo, which is on Nikon cameras called AFS. It probably has a different name on Canon cameras. And what that means is when you half press the shutter, the camera will focus once. It'll go and say, I have focus, and that's it. You're now focused. And it will stay at that focus that it finds until you press the shutter all the way or until you lift your finger, re-half press, and it will focus again. So you're focusing once per half press of the shutter. That's single servo. The other choice then is continuous servo. For as long as your finger is half pressed, it will keep adjusting the focus until you press all the way through. And if you're dealing with moving things that are moving towards you or away from you, then you actually want AFC. But if you're going to focus and recompose, well, then you absolutely want AFS. And generally speaking, if you leave your camera in AFA, it will single servo focus unless it notices that there's something moving in the scene. And then it will switch to AFC. So AFA is probably fine. But if you find the camera doing odd things, maybe you actually want to assert yourself here and say, actually, no, single servo, please. Or no, I really do want you to continuously focus. So continuous servo, please. That's kind of up to you. A lot of the time, my camera lives in AFA, to be honest. And there's also an option in that same menu on the Nikons to go to MF, which is manual focus. Now, a lot of lenses have a physical switch that simply turns off the autofocus motor. So that takes care of that. But you can also turn it off in software by setting the autofocus mode to manual focus or no autofocus or off may vary a bit another thing you get control over is the af area mode and what you're doing here is you're telling the camera how you would like it to what you would like it to automatically focus on based on some potential options and again what's available is going to depend camera manufacturer to camera manufacturer so i'm afraid we're now into the part of this discussion where i say rtfm read the fine manual uh, but, you know, again, a lot of these modes will be available in many cameras, but some of them are going to be specific to my particular Nikon. Modern cameras probably have more modes. But anyway, the simplest setting for the autofocus area mode is single point autofocus, which on a Nikon camera is basically a big pair of chevrons and then a little pair of chevrons inside it. And that means that of that grid of autofocus points, you get to move them around before you take a shot and you say actually no i want you that one no i want you to use that one so basically you're you're telling the camera which of its many autofocus points it should use to focus and it will use exactly that one focus point to guess its focus not guess sorry um to uh, to achieve its focus uh you then have on my particular nikon something called dynamic area autofocus what that basically means is if it's moving i'd like you to focus on it this is very good for stuff that's moving 
you know a car race a motorbike race a bird someone playing a sport someone in a race that kind of thing uh, if it moves i want it in focus is basically what you're saying with dynamic area uh 3d tracking is where you basically say i want you to keep continuously auto focusing on this thing which is moving in three dimensions in the scene and that's sort of like dynamic area only more fancy pants really as best as i can figure out and then the last one is just basically throw your hands up in the air and say, dear camera, you guess. So that's auto area, auto focus. And that's basically saying, I don't want to make this decision, which is a perfectly valid thing to do. Remember, what we're saying is it's the ability here to decide how much we want to decide to some extent. Then metering is the next thing. So I keep on saying that the camera is going to figure out what is the correct exposure based on the light meter. Well, the light meter doesn't have to measure everything the light meter can focus itself if you excuse the pun i guess it's not focused in the focusing sense the, the light meter can choose to base its measurement on not you know on some or all of the light coming into the sensor and you can control that through the metering mode so again exactly what metering modes are available is going to depend on which particular um uh, model of camera you have but the most common one, you'll see the logo for it looks like um, a credit card chip. And that's called matrix metering. And that basically means look at the whole scene and use the whole scene to decide what is correctly exposed. And that is usually the default and that's the simplest mode. At the other end of the extreme, you have something called spot metering. And so again, you will, if you set spot metering in most cameras, you can then Use, basically, one of the autofocus points gets to be the point where the exposure is defined. Uh, you need to be careful with that, because if you have spot metering on and you're, you have that spot over a black car, well, the exposure is going to be way off, because it's going to make that black car properly exposed. So it really is a spot. Now, if you have some sort of grey card, that's a fantastic thing to do, to meter off a grey card. But in reality, you probably don't have a grey card unless you're in a studio. So actually, be very careful of spot metering out and about, outside of the studio, I would say. So there's that happy medium between those two extremes measure everything or measure only this one spot and that's called center weighted metering and that means that it will give the center of the scene not just a single point but sort of the middle area it will use to decide so if you're if you can imagine you're framing your shot with some dark trees it will adjust it will set the exposure based on what's in the middle of your scene i.e what you're seeing through that framing and it will ignore the framing when calculating the exposure, which is probably what you want because you'll probably get a nice silhouette out of it that way. So I generally like to keep my uh, metering as center-weighted, which I find is a happy medium between matrix and spot. Again, it's something I have control over, though. Um, you can also control how bright the flash is. Uh, yeah, so that we've covered everything else here that I can see in the back of my camera. So I'm hoping that's given you some sort of idea of how you can begin to delegate or not different aspects of your photography to the little computer in there. And really, you're going to have to read the manual on your own camera to be able to get good at this because every camera is different. Uh, they're going to have different names for things. They're going to have different labels on things. And some cameras will have more features than other cameras and some cameras will have fewer features than other cameras. So you, you kind of have to read the manual, A, to know what features there are to choose between and B, how your manufacturer has decided to define those things because they, they they will have a meaning and the, the, the manual will tell you 
Um, now, in some cameras, they'll also give you a lot of help. So while you're navigating through the menus, they might be showing you little pictures of what it's good for and what it's bad for. Um, the, the Nikons are pretty good about doing that, showing you sort of helpful little hints as you're setting your settings. But either way, there you have to know what your camera can do in order to make clever decisions, you know, not clever, sensible decisions. And really, you need to practice because... Unless it's second nature to you, you know, exactly what buttons to push, exactly what some twiddles to twiddle and so on and so forth, you're not going to be able to do it when something is really in front of your lens that you need to capture that you don't get a second chance on. So I spend a lot of time sort of experimenting around with things when the subject is not of importance. So I'm just out on an ordinary day. There's not a steam train on. It's just an ordinary day. So there's ordinary trains. Well, then I'll get experimental. Or I'm at the airport and there's nothing special on. There's no Air Force One landing or anything. It's completely normal, you know. Normal Aer Lingus and Ryanair jets like I've seen a million of before. Well, that's the time to experiment because it doesn't matter if you mess it up completely. And that's when you get your practice in and your experimentation in. And then when the real day comes, when something actually interesting comes, you know, there's a steam special running or there's a family event or there's a sporting event, something real, something you can't just hold up your hand and say, stop, do that again. Well, you have your practice done. And so you're now comfortable with your camera. So the more control you take from your camera, the more you and your camera have to become one, not to get all hippie on you there, but really... The camera needs to become an extension of you. You need to be operating those controls, not by thinking, what control do I want to operate? But simply, you shouldn't be thinking about how do I set the aperture to this, or how do I switch modes, or how do I dial in exposure compensation, or how do I change the focusing mode? You should be thinking of what you want to do, and the how should be completely automatic. Your your fingers should just do it. And all your brain is thinking about is what I want to do. And you're spending none of your time trying to remember how. The how needs to become automatic, I guess is what I'm saying. So that uh, that sort of brings us to the end, really, of this three-part series. Um, this is, I think this is the, the longest I've um, subjected you guys to just me. Um, I'm wondering, actually, how you guys think it went. I would definitely appreciate some feedback. If you go to let's-talk.ie, there is a place where you can send feedback. Um, you can just comment on the show, of course, is the easiest way to send feedback. I would actually appreciate knowing how you guys think this this series went. Now, what I will say is my plans for next month's show are for it not to be just me. Um, I'm I like talking to other people. I don't like always talking into the mic myself. I mean, it was fun to get to to be this, if you'll excuse the phrase, intimate with you guys. But uh, it's time to, to to have some more voices again. So the next show, I have one in mind. I'm not going to tell you what it is because I may or may not be able to pull it off. But it is very much my plan that there will be more than one voice on next month's show. So we've reached the end of the real show, really. But I do still want to talk to you about a few things. So this is the point where I would normally say, please go to let's-talk.ie and click on one of the three buttons to support the show. And yes, I would like you to go to let's-talk.ie. And yes, I would like you to support the show. But it's not three buttons anymore. It's for the moment five, and I may kill that down to four. So the single most effective way to support this show is to become a patron of the show on Patreon. So the concept is very simple. You pledge a small dollar amount per show that comes out. And then as I publish the shows, at the end of the month, I will get paid based... Your cards will get charged and I will get paid based on how many shows I got out. Now, I I do two shows a month, one photography and one Mac. 
Therefore, if you would like to contribute $5 a month, pledge $2.50 per episode, and that will come to $5 a month. If you want to pledge $2 a month, pledge one per show, you get the idea. And the reason that's so effective is because it's a very good way to minimize the fees. If you donate a dollar or two dollars via PayPal, almost all of it goes to PayPal. I believe out of a one dollar donation, I get something like 28 cent if it goes through PayPal direct. If you do that through Patreon, I get, I believe it's over 90 cent of that. Uh, I, I must actually do the math to be sure. But basically, there's a, still a small amount goes to PayPal and there's a small amount goes to Patreon for what they do, which is only right because they're providing a great service. But the vast, vast bulk of it actually arrives with the podcaster or artist, whoever it is you're supporting on Patreon. So that that's why it exists and that's why it's so good. Now, the other reason I like it so much is because if you guys pledge a certain amount, I have some sort of vague idea of what's coming in, which allows me to do budgeting so I know that the server bills will be covered and that kind of thing. And I'm also hoping to save up for a new mic this calendar year. And, you know, there are hardware things which eventually over time, you know, break. And there's also software things which I might like. At some stage, I would quite like a copy of Logic from Apple, but we're a wee bit away from that yet, to be honest. Um, We're now at the stage where the show is approximately breaking even, which is wonderful to have arrived at. Uh, The other way to support the show is very straightforward. It's a PayPal button. You click the button, you say how much money you'd like to give, and hey presto, whatever that amount is, minus the fees that goes to PayPal, comes to me, and that is always muchly appreciated. Um, And then the third way we've had for ages is the Zazzle store, which basically has merchandise with the uh, podcast logo on it. And it hasn't been popular, is uh, is an honest appraisal of it. Um, I think I'm the biggest customer because I really like their insulated coffee mugs. They're actually really good quality and the printing is really nice on them. And so I have a few of those and I I like to sit and work with my own mug. Um, And they also do decent quality uh, polo shirts, t-shirts, that kind of thing. Um, And so I will also buy some of those. Just I may as well advertise myself. But on the whole, very few of you guys have ever used it. Now, the question that's been on my mind is, is that because I have done a terrible job of designing interesting t-shirts and things? Or is that because you guys simply have absolutely positively no interest? So I'm either going to start doing clever t-shirts with fun slogans or nice pictures or something, basically jazz it up a bit, or I'm going to get rid of the store. I haven't decided which I'm going to do, and I would actually appreciate your feedback on which approach you think would make sense. So then that leaves us with the two new buttons. So these are indirect. Well, no, they support the show. and Actually, they're quite effective ways of supporting the show. So the show is hosted online um, and uh, as are a number of other free things I do. Um, so XKPassWD is a free thing I do. Uh, Semaphorify.net converts things to semaphore, which is those flag signals. It's purely for fun. It's for free online. Uh, there's also subnetcalc.it, um, which does IP subnet calculations for free and online. Um, and then, of course, there's my own uh, blog where I do all sorts of series is like programming by stealth, taming the terminal, all those kind of things. And so all of that together involves web servers and domain registrations. And I like to get my web servers from a company called Hover. Or not Hover. Uh, sorry, let me get this right. I like to get my web servers from a place called DigitalOcean. Uh, They have really good rates on virtual private machines, or basically VMs in the cloud. A really good UI for starting and stopping and running them. And there's just, I just like them. They they rub me up the right way, basically. And they have provided me with a good, robust service for a long time. So what I have with them is an affiliate code. So they're, they're not sponsoring the show in any way, it's just an affiliate code. And if you use that affiliate code 
And now there's a well, it's not so much a catch. Basically, you can't use the affiliate code for free money. You actually have to need some hosting. And if you need some hosting, then this will work out well for you and for me. If you don't need some hosting, don't waste your time clicking the link. Basically, until so, if you use my affiliate link to sign up with DigitalOcean. You'll get $10 of credit and I'll get a credit too. But that credit will happen after you spend $50. So after you spend $50, you'll get $10 free dollars and I'll get some money as well. Uh, so the idea is this is only useful if you actually want some hosting. So if you need some hosting, consider this. If you don't need some hosting, ignore this link completely. And somewhat similar vein, though a little bit more straightforward, is Hover.com, her domain registrar, whom I use whenever I can. Unfortunately, they don't do .ie, so while I do use them for a lot of my on, my stuff, can't use them for let's-talk.ie because they don't do .ie's, which is most annoying. But anyway, I use Hover for a lot of domains. Again, I like them. They, they do things, they have a really nice UI, and they charge a fair price for a good service. And they too have an affiliate code, which is what the fifth and final button is. And this one is much straight, more straightforward. If you buy something after clicking that affiliate button to get into the site, I'll get $2. And I don't think you get anything, unfortunately, apart from the satisfaction of having given me $2. And it really is just that straightforward. You use my link, I get $2 if you buy something and only if you buy something. So again, don't click the link for the crack. If you actually need a domain name and you're actually interested in giving Hover a go, and I'm not telling you to use them, and I'm not telling you they're the best on the planet. I'm just telling you they happen to be the company I've settled on after having gotten cranky with quite a few other companies. And the same goes for DigitalOcean. They're not the first hosting company I've used. They're not the only hosting company I've used, or indeed I'm using. They're just ones that have made me the least cranky the most recently. And so it's not so much a recommendation as that I've put my money where my mouth is, and here's some affiliate links. And if you happen to need some of these things and you happen to agree with me that these are good companies, then please use the affiliate link because you'll help the show and you may get yourself a little bit of money back as well. So I guess that's a very long way of saying that's what those two new buttons are for. Anyway, thanks again to everyone who has supported the show in any way whatsoever. That means as simple as telling your friends, tweeting about the show, reviewing the show on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you like, or supporting the show one of the others you've mentioned. It is all very much appreciated, and basically, this is a listener-supported show, so without you guys, it wouldn't exist, and I thank you very much for all the support you've given me over the many years now that this show has been on the air. So, as I say, uh, probably an interview show next time, or a panel show, but probably an interview show, and until then, happy snapping! You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. This is Mark Chappell of the Essential Mac and the Rampant Mumblings podcast. And this is Carl Madden of the Mac and Forth Show podcast. You know what, Carl? No, nope, never met him. But it's funny how many people ask. No, no, no. I mean, you know what we should do? Get better writers? Well, that goes without saying no. I think we should merge. Excuse me? Rampant Mumblings, Essential Mac, Mac and Forth should merge. Sounds messy. No, no, no. It'll be good. We can still have all the incisive news, views and opinions of Rampant Mumblings and Essential Mac along with, well, whatever Mac and Forth has to offer. Hmm. And what should we call this new monster? Uh, I mean venture. Well, it's still essentially an Apple-related show, so why not... How'd you like those apples? Catchy, but does it essentially sum up what an apple show should be about? All right, how about get your apples here, an apple a day, chatty apple, happy pie, oh, oh.
just Apple. No, we essentially need something that is more Apple-related. Monkey tennis! Huh? No, no, no. We just need something essentially Apple that lets people know we will essentially be discussing Apple-related things. You knuckleheads. Just call your new podcast the Essential Apple Podcast for when people have essentially run out of good podcasts to listen to. Should have gone with monkey tennis.